Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Name this tune. Play with me. Can y'all play with me for a minute? Y'all okay out there? That's pretty good. Finish this line. There was Gilligan and the skipper to a millionaire. All right, perfect. A movie. Sorry, I just can't stop. Movie star. All right. Amazing Grace. How bad. All right, good, good. We didn't sing that well, but you know, y'all got it. God, I'm thankful. You know, a lot of times when you hear the first line. Even sometimes the first tune of a song, what does it make you want to do? Sing it. Isn't it funny how songs are so powerful that way? The moment I began to, to, to whistle the Andy Griffith uh, theme song, you probably began to picture Barney and his, pulling his bullet out of his pocket, right? You had memories of Andy or, or some, something on the show, right? We attach memories to songs. Man, my mom and I would ride down the road and we would listen to classic rock together. Don't judge us. We'd listen to classic rock and my mom would quiz me, who was this? Who sang this? What album was this? So that's what I grew up doing, and so uh, I have so many memories that I hear the beginning of a Steve Miller band song. You're judging me right now, aren't you? Don't judge me. You're a sinner too. And, and, and I, I can be taken somewhere. Songs are powerful that way, aren't they? And it, and it doesn't matter whether it's a, a Christian song or a, a not-Christian song, a song of our faith. Songs do that to us. They can transport us places. And it's just funny how that happens. Jesus, as he is hanging on the cross, he says this phrase, and finish it for me, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's he doing? Why is he saying that? Here's what Jesus is doing. He is singing, saying the first line of a song, a prayer. 
out of Psalm chapter 22. There on the cross, imagine what's happening. Jesus is the sinless Savior. He, he's lived a, a perfect life. He has healed people and preached good news of the kingdom. He's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He didn't come to tear down the, the Old Testament, the, the Jewish way. He came to fulfill it. And Jesus was betrayed and is being crucified. An innocent man, even the thieves on either side of him declare his innocence. And there on the cross, he says the first line of a song that would have been sung maybe in synagogues. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the first line in Psalm chapter 22. Why is Jesus doing that? Because what he's doing for those who are hearing, those who are listening, and I pray that you and I this morning would have eyes to see and ears to hear. What he's doing there on the cross is reminding the hearer, not of the first line of the psalm, but of the entire song or poem. And I want to read it for you today. And I want you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word out of Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest by day and by night. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening lion. Listen, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Sound familiar? But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. 
For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, and my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Can I get an amen, somebody? All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. Shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. Shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let's pray. Father, Psalm 119 says, Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your law. And I pray this morning that you would accomplish that, that you would speak to us through your word, and you'd teach us in Christ's name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Over the next few weeks, we're going we're, we're to walk to the cross. We're going to walk from the cross to an empty tomb. And we're going to join the journey of Jesus, but we're going to do so a little differently. We're going to look this weekend at Psalm 22. We're going to look next weekend um, at another Old Testament prophet. And I, I want to look what God says about the cross in the Old Testament. So I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine this idea, this, this, this that we just read. I want you to understand that this, what we just read, was written about a thousand years B.C. A thousand years before Jesus is born, King David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the words to Psalm 22. I want you to see three things out of this passage today. And the first thing that I want you to see is that the crucifixion is God's eternal plan of salvation. The crucifixion of Jesus was God's eternal plan of salvation. All right, where were you on 9-11-2001? Do you remember? I remember right where I was. I remember right where I pulled over on the road when I got the news. I remember, I remember that moment. Well, what's, what's the saying? Never forget, right? We'll never forget that day. We, we as a country, we've never been the same since then. There are some of you in this, in this uh, room here who because of that fateful day, you went across the seas to serve your country and we are grateful for you, by the way. Um, but I'll never forget that day. Now, I want you to imagine if there was a document written in the year 1001 A.D. that described in detail the plan to hijack four flying objects to destroy tall towers and other 
political buildings and to kill many. I want you to imagine that that document, if it was written in 1001 AD, would have been written in the height of the Byzantine Empire and would be a thousand years before the attack of 9-11. 500 years before America was discovered by Europe and 900 years before the buildings were built and planes were invented. And imagine that there was a document written in 1001 A.D. that in detail portrayed the events of 9-11. And imagine that that document came to light and was found to be historically reliable. What would we think about such a document that described in detail the events of that fateful day on 9-11-2001? A thousand years before it happened. We would say, wow, there's something special about this. This is maybe even divine. I can't believe how accurate it is. And what I want you to see today is that's exactly what we have in Psalm chapter 22. We have God's word through God's prophet and king, David, written down for us and in detail, lining out what a crucifixion would look like a thousand years before the crucifixion actually took place in a time where crucifixion yet hadn't yet been invented. Jews did not crucify anyone. Jews would stone people or shoot them through with an arrow. Crucifixion was invented much later, yet is portrayed in Psalm 22 with great clarity. Are you following me this morning? Isn't this amazing? I want you to see Psalm 22. and I, We're just going to go through. There are a number of details, depending on what um, commentarian you listen to. There are about nine very specific details, but let's just walk through. Number one, verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the words Jesus said. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. There on the cross, in the middle of the day, as Jesus hung, Darkness covered the face of the world, didn't it? It's recorded in history that on the day where Jesus died, that light fled and darkness came in the middle of the day. And you have here Psalm 22, verse 2, I cry by day and by night. Verse 3, yet you are holy. What you see is uh, the, the, the servant of Psalm 22. The servant of Psalm 22 saying, God... Why have you forsaken me? But I know it's, it's you that's holy. I know, I know that. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you were rescued and you they trusted and were not put to shame. He says, but I, I'm a worm and not a man. See, they, the, 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 the people of Israel, they called out, you rescued. They called out, you delivered. You sent a judge, you sent a king. You sent somebody to rescue them. But me, when I call, I'm treated differently right now. I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by the people. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. 
They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. Listen to what it says. This is what the mockers are saying of the servant in Psalm 22. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Listen to what the mockers are saying. If the Lord delights in him that much, let the Lord deliver him. I want you to understand the portrayal here of the cross that the psalmist David is writing a thousand years beforehand. He's saying, the Lord delights in the servant, yet he won't rescue him. And the mockers have grabbed a hold of that. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. I want you to understand something interesting about the servant in Psalm 22, that the servant had fellowship with God from the very beginning. From his mother's womb, there was fellowship with God. Is that abnormal for you and me? There comes a day in our life where we turn from sin and turn to the Savior, and then we're ushered into fellowship with God, but not so for the servant of Psalm 22. He had fellowship with God from the day he was born. He trusted in Yahweh at his mother's breasts. I need you to understand that there is no reason in the servant for the abandonment that he's experiencing. Are you, are you with me? I need you to follow with me. Don't go to sleep. This is amazing. He says, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. What happened to all Jesus' helpers? They're scattered. The Bible even says you strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's exactly what happened. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. I've never done this, but uh, one of my my previous church members at my last church was a a cowboy. Modern day cowboy. He didn't ride a horse. He drove a Dodge Ram around the field, okay? So that was his cowboying. But he worked cows every day of his life from the time that he graduated college to the time that he moved uh, across overseas to work as a missionary. And uh, he worked cows his whole life. And I tell you one thing, if a bull doesn't want to do something... Guess what you can't do? If it really doesn't want to do it. And he says, there are a lot of strong bulls around me and there's no stopping them. Verse 13, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. I want you to think about a crucifixion. A crucifixion, the, the one being crucified hangs we are aware that Jesus hung for approximately six hours on a cross, and in hanging, what happened to his joints? See, understand that in, on a crucifixion, there are either um, straps going around hands and feet, or there are nails going through hands and feet. And either way, um, if you wanted to breathe, what would happen in crucifixion is your body would hang on the weight of your hands and your feet. Eventually, the strength in your legs would go. The strength in your arms would grow tired. And the weight of your torso would begin to fall and crush on 
your lungs. And it was tough to breathe, impossible eventually. And so the one being crucified would have to pull up on hands and up on feet in order to draw a next breath. And eventually, what's going to happen is exhaustion will take over and bones will be pulled out of joint. He says, my heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. When Jesus is hanging on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 28, he cries out one of the last things that Jesus says before he gives up his spirit is he says, I thirst. I want you to understand that there on the cross, Jesus is taking on the metaphorical thirst of the world. The spiritual parching of the entire world there on the cross. He didn't want water. He said, I thirst. You lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. Who do the Jews call dogs? Gentiles, in a, a general manner, specifically Roman soldiers in that day. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. Who is Jesus crucified in between? Thieves? They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Why can he count all his bones? Well, they stare at me and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What happened there at the crucifixion was that they stripped Jesus of this tunic or robe that he had on. And instead of breaking it into pieces and sharing it among themselves, they, or they pulled it off of him. And it was too nice, I guess, or whatever, to, to, to tear into pieces. And so they began to roll some dice over it. They cast lots over it to see who would win it. And when he is without his outer covering, he can. there is a physical sense that he can see all of his bones. And then there is another sense that he can see all of his bones because um, it, it says in the Psalms, That not a single bone of his would be broken. And, and it says not a single bone is broken. He can count all his bones. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I want you to hear what... The psalmist is writing a thousand years before the crucifixion, almost in detail portrays what crucifixion is like. And the psalmist is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so likely there is something going on in David's life, but what we know through the prophecies of Scripture is that there are so many prophetic 
parts of Scripture that are pointed then and pointing forward to something greater. And so that's exactly what's happening in this passage. And what we see is that the plan of the crucifixion was God's eternal plan. Do you understand that? God planned the crucifixion from the beginning. The Word of God says that Jesus Christ is the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. It's not an accident that Jesus was slain. God was not making lemonade out of lemons on the cross. God planned the cross. God intended the cross. So when Genesis chapter 3 in the fall happened, it wasn't surprising to God because the cross was already in mind. The cross is God's eternal plan of salvation. How is it that man can be saved from sin, forgiven, and restored to right relationship with God, which is what all of the Old Testament begs to answer, but none of the Old Testament actually does until it reaches Psalm 22, Isaiah chapter 53, Zechariah chapter 13, I need you to understand today that God loved mankind so desperately and so dearly that from the very beginning it was the eternal plan of the triune God to send the Son to the cross to redeem that which was lost. The second thing that I want you to see is that Psalm 22 reveals the depth of our sin problem. A lot of people will say, well, why did Jesus die? Well, he died to make me a better person. Wrong. Wrong. The Bible does not want you to become a better person. That's not the goal of the Bible. That is a result of salvation. But that's not the goal of the Bible. The goal of the law is not to save somebody the goal of the law is to point you to your need for a Savior. So all through the Old Testament, they're, they're offering sacrifices. And these sacrifices bring about a forgiveness of sin for a short time period. But there's never an assurance of how am I going to be saved. See? The cross does not simply teach us to be good people because Jesus was a good example or to teach us to be religious or churchgoers. It's more than that. Psalm 22 and the, the crucifixion teach us that mankind's sin problem was so heinous that the punishment for sin is so severe that the only solution was either to destroy every human being because of their sinful nature or to provide a substitute servant who would stand in the place of sinful humanity and bear the punishment for sin himself. And that's what every year there was a Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and every year on Yom Kippur they would sacrifice uh, a lamb and they would have a goat and the lamb and the goat, two sacrifices, one uh, was slain, and one, the, the elders of Israel would lay their hands on the lamb, or the goat, I mean, and they would confess the sins of Israel over the goat, and then they would cast the goat away. And the lamb would die for the sin of Israel, and the goat would bear the sin away into the wilderness. 
But I need you to understand that it was either God should crush each one of us because of our sin, because our sin is so heinous in God's eyes, or God could provide a substitute, just like he did to Abraham on the mountain in uh, Genesis chapter 22, that he provided a substitute in place of Isaac, his own son. And what we find is the servant of Psalm chapter 22 experiences the cross so that we don't have to experience that kind of death. That God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, was sent and that God would crush the Son, that those who believe in Jesus for salvation might be spared. And this should help us consider that our sins are an affront on the living God. They're not mistakes, they're not faults, they're not flaws. Have you ever minimized sin like that? Well, it's just a little white lie. Come on now, you liars. We've all done that, haven't we? So it's just a little white lie. We've minimized it. Well, it's not that bad. I was doing it to protect them. And we've minimized it. But every sin is a rebellion against our Creator. Don't minimize it. Don't relativize it. Don't go, well, it's not as bad as so-and-so or such-and-such. That's relativizing it. That's like on a sliding scale. How bad am I today? Well, I'm not as bad as they are. Right? And we do that. We don't shift blame like Adam and Eve did. Eve goes, it's, it's the snake's fault. And Adam goes, it's her fault. And you gave her to me, so... See, Isaiah the prophet, he had a vision of God and all his splendor. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he fled. And one called to, the, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smokes, smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe! is me. A very prophet of God, the very called man of God for the time doesn't say, wow, this is amazing. He says, woe is me. Why? Because in the presence of the three times holy God, Isaiah is not proud of who he is. He is ashamed at the very sin indwelling him. He sees as he is so close to God Almighty. He sees his reflection. And he is not proud of what he sees in the mirror of God's infinite perfection. Are you with me? And he says, woe is me. He says, I am lost. Some versions will say, I am undone. Other versions will say, I am ruined. He says, I'm, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees the Lord. And he doesn't say, wow, 
is me. But he says, woe is me. Are you with me? See, his prophet status meant nothing before the king of kings. It begs us to ask the question, what should save me? Is keeping the law, is that going to save me? No. Why? Because as much as I want to try to keep God's law, I can't do it. I've tried. Have you tried? Can you keep his law? I sure can't. If you can, maybe you should come preach today. We can't keep God's law. Well, how about the sacrifices? The sacrifices will save me, except that they, the people of Israel gave sacrifices to such a degree and with such a hard heart that God says, I don't want any more of your sacrifices. Why would I want your goats and your lambs? I want your heart. My righteousness? Is your righteousness going to save you? No, it didn't save Isaiah. Isaiah stood before the king of glory and he didn't say, look how righteous I am, God. Let me show you my credentials. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. Isaiah understood he needed something and he called out in that moment, he, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among an unclean people. And what happens? One of the seraphim flew with tongs to the, the altar, grabbed a, a burning coal from the altar and came down and purified his lips. There was a need in Isaiah's life and God met it. There was forgiveness in Isaiah's life. There was purification. There was righteousness given through what Isaiah could not do. He needed a rescuer. And I need you to understand that Jesus was crushed in order to offer salvation to those who would see their great need for a Savior. To stop trusting those who would stop trusting their own merit and place their faith fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ on a cross. I want to read a passage to you out of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 50, uh, 49 to 53 or 4 is called the servant song. And this is what it says of the servant in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 6, and then 10 to 11. It says, surely he, that's the servant. Many would say, well, the servant's Israel. Except that, I want you to listen to the context. Surely he, the servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Isaiah is writing to Israel. He's saying there is somebody, a servant, who was crushed to bring Israel peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him, the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11 says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul, listen, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and out of the anguish of 
his soul. He shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquity. Do you see what Yahweh is saying? God is saying, he says that the servant will come and bear the sin and the iniquity. And I'll crush him. And in crushing him, his crushing will bring peace and healing. His wounds will heal the nations. Do you see it? I want you to understand that that the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was God's eternal plan from the beginning. And it reveals how much we need a Savior. Church is not about you showing off your morality or your goodness or coming to parade how awesome of a person you are. Church, my favorite thing about church is it's a place where a bunch of broken people can come and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Church is not a place where the healthy come together to showcase their health, but where the sick find need or find healing from the great physician. And if you don't think you need a Savior, if you don't think you're spiritually sick, if you don't think you need every day to be saved from your sin, then you, my friend, are deceived. It reveals to us the depth of it. The last thing I want to say today out of God's word is, is that the forsaken servant of Psalm chapter 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was a necessary part of God's salvation. I want to go back real fast to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter well, 1 and 2, God created he placed Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam, he gave a task of, of serving in the garden, of naming things, of keeping it. And then he brought Eve to him. Out of his side, he presented Eve, and they lived. And they lived in fellowship with God. They lived knowing God until a fateful day where uh, Adam and Eve rebelled against God by eating of the fruit of a tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree that God told them not to eat from. They rebelled against God and His command. Are you with me? God said, you can eat of every, every tree from every, or every fruit of every tree in the garden save one. And guess what? It's like telling a man, don't touch that red button. How long? You mean like forever? And there in the garden, that fateful day when Adam and Eve rebelled against the king of kings, God said no more. God placed a curse on, on the, the head of Satan, a curse on Eve, and a curse on Adam. Not in that order. I got that out of order. Satan, Adam, Eve. He put a curse on each one of them. And then he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and he put a, a, a cherubim with a flaming sword in the, the gate of the garden and he said, you can't enter in anymore. There's separation. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, your sin has separated you from me. I can't come into the holiness of God because of the sinfulness of mankind. Even the temple 
uh, helps us understand that. There was separation in the garden, and God wanted to restore His people to Himself, so how would He do it? He would do it by a tree. And what hung on that tree? See, in the garden, mankind rebelled and deserved death and separation by partaking of what hung on a tree, but on the cross, there was someone who hung on the tree that all who might look on him like they looked on the serpent in the wilderness, all who looked on him in faith, we might experience life and reconciliation with God. See, the curse of the serpent was that one day there would come a seed of Eve who would crush your head. And Jesus there on the cross, in His final words, He declared, it is finished. And three days later, He rose victoriously from the tomb, crushing the head of the serpent. Uh, to, to Adam, or to Eve, the curse was, having babies is going to hurt. And for you who have had babies, amen. And it was, it's funny that our Savior came in a humble means through the birth of a woman. He has no earthly father. And our Savior was born through the curse of childbearing to redeem the very woman that gave birth to him from that curse through his death on a cross. On the cross, Jesus was crowned with a crown of. In the garden, God looked at Adam and he said, the curse on you, Adam, is that you're going to work the ground and where it should have borne fruit, it's going to bear thorns and thistles. And there on the cross, Jesus wore a crown of thorns. It was the plan of God for our Savior to bear the curse of mankind upon His brow and redeem all mankind from the curse of Adam and Eve. So that we might be brought to God. The Bible starts in a garden. Guess where the, the New Testament ends? In a garden. There's a new garden. The new garden is given by God and it says in Revelation chapter 22 that God will be there in that garden. There will be a new Jerusalem. There will be no temple. There's not going to be a need for the temple because God will be in our midst. He'll wipe away every tear from every eye and take away pain and suffering and death. All the brokenness of the world will be restored in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords and we will know Him face to face. Revelation 22 says that we shall see His face. We shall behold God. How do we do that? How does, in Genesis chapter 3, sinful man ever get back into the presence of God again? The only way is through the servant found in Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 53. I want to encourage you this morning. You might not know me very well. And I might not know you, each of you, very well. There's a lot of new faces in here that I'm getting to know better and better. But I want to encourage you today that what doesn't save you is you coming to church and sitting on a pew and being a good person 
It doesn't, what doesn't save you is keeping the law and obeying all the rules. That doesn't save you. What saves you is a substitute. Somebody had to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And if you'll understand the need of your heart, how sinful we are in, the, the, in relation to the holiness of God, how, fall, or how short I fall, it will leave me with none other than saying with my brother Isaiah, woe is me. Or like Paul in Romans chapter 7, who will save me? Paul answers his own question, Romans chapter 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm encouraging you to stop trusting in you and start trusting in Jesus. My prayer for you is that I don't know what you believe about Jesus See, we can talk about God and have a great day, but the moment we talk about Jesus, there's going to be a divide. And some of you believe that Jesus is who He says He is. Some of you don't. And I want to encourage you to believe. To have faith. To trust that Jesus is God who left heaven to come to earth to be a substitute in life and in death for you. Some of us, we try to differentiate the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. And I want to remind you what the Scripture says about God, that He never changes. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, want to, I hope that today, if nothing more, you would leave with an appreciation that the God's plan of redemption for the world has never changed. And two, my greatest prayer for each one of you is that you would see your need. And Charles Spurgeon says it this way, I have a great need for a Savior. But I have a great Savior for my need. Father, let's pray. Father, I've got friends in this room who are struggling with trusting Jesus, struggling that, that Jesus could be who he says he is, and what does that mean if he is? I've got friends in this room who are trusting in their own righteousness rather than the righteousness that God can give through faith. They're trying to please you out of their own strength, and that's never going to happen. They're trying to work their way to heaven. They're trying to obey their way to heaven, but they can't do it, Father, because we're all going to fail you. And my prayer for each one of us is that we would see the beauty of God We'd see the holiness of God. We would see our own need. We would see the great Savior who's come to meet our need. And we would run to the cross every day. We'd glory in the cross. And Father, I pray this morning that not a single one of us would 
would be able to leave without being in awe of God. Speak to our hearts. You know what each one of us needs. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing our closing song?